Good afternoon. It's Friday the 6th of May 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we shall get straight on then with uh, the Bank of England and their announcement uh, yesterday that, uh, well, interest rates are going to go up. Here they all are. There's the illustrious Andrew Bailey. Um, we'll come on to him in a bit more detail in a second. Uh, but let's, uh, as they get seated there, have a look and see what they announced. Here was their graphic. We have raised interest rates to 1%. Higher energy and goods prices have raised inflation. Uh, we expect it to rise to around 10% this year, they said. We've put up interest rates uh, to help inflation return to our 2% target. Uh, we expect inflation to fall next year and be close to our 2% target in around two years. This is what they're claiming. Um, and so they produced a nice graphic here from the Monetary Policy Report uh, showing how interest rates have gone back up again uh, to 1%, having been around 0% for, uh, well, two years, I suppose, uh, but significantly close to 0% for since 2008, basically. Um, and, uh, well, what did happen to the uh, sterling as a result? Well, it, it came down significantly, and lots of the mainstream headlines uh, yesterday and today were... Uh, how sterling has tanked as a result. But in fact, if you look at this graph, which is uh, going back uh, quite a long time, uh, it was already heading south for quite some time. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, major losses, uh, you know, a month and a half ago or so, and not just yesterday by any means. Good for arms sales, though. Well, it is. But let's uh, look at uh, what they think that inflation is going to do. We expect it to fall next year, they say. So it's going to reach uh, 10%. Uh, at some point, but it will fall in 2023 and be back to below 2% is what they're pre predicting by any, 2025. Any explanations as to how it got to 10%? Do we have anything beyond Putin and uh, and and, well, the, and a virus? Uh, no, no, of course not. And, but no, no, <laughs> no, we'll come on to that in a second. Now, the, the point is, more importantly than have they any explanation for how it got there in the first place, they have no explanation for how it's coming back down again. Yeah. So let's just remind ourselves what Andrew Bailey said last year. This was in October. Our forecast at the, mo at the moment, this is in October last year, is that we do expect inflation to pick up in the next month or so, really. Uh, it's been under 1% for my entire time as government. Every opportunity I've had to write a letter to the chancellor to explain why I've had to take, okay? So uh, expects to rise, but we don't see that sort of, in a sense, momentum continuing forward at that pace at all. So in October last year, he was not predicting that inflation would do what it has done. So he's got no credibility. None whatsoever. And at the moment in October, he said, we don't see evidence that it will rise, but we'll watch it, of course. We must do very carefully. So this is supposed to be the smartest man in the room uh, when it comes to money and finance and inflation, right? That is what he's supposed to be. And it's it's really his only job. So so that means we're in we're not in a very good place, are we? No. So let's just remind ourselves why inflation is doing what it is. Because as you say, it's got nothing to do with uh, Putin or Russia or anything like that. Well, in reality, is that what you're saying? Are yes. You being it, no. In reality, so so this is gold money. We've shown this before, but it's worthwhile looking at it again, and and I'll show you why in a second. But they headlined this uh, too much liquidity, and they said. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the world is now awash with excess money, the two greatest inflationists being the Federal Reserve Bank and the Bank of England. It doesn't say anything about Putin in there, Mike. It doesn't. I'm really, really upset about that. It doesn't. Where, where is Putin? Well, well, it gets worse because, look, they produced this nice graph. 
uh, showing who are the main inflationists uh, as they describe them. And you've got the Federal Reserve having inflated since between December 2007 and June 2021, a 793% increase in the amount of money sloshing around the, uh, the financial system, let's say. Uh, the Bank of England, 792% in that time. The Bank of J Japan, 541%. And uh, European Central Bank, 408%. And then we start looking at China, and that's 125%. So they're not quite on the same scale at all. So anyway, uh, Gold Money went on to say, it's interesting that the Bank of England's chief economist has chosen this summer, that's last summer, to leave the bank, deciding at the same time to no longer toe the official line about rising prices, uh, evidenced by the launch of a uh, 1 trillion euro uh, COVID stimulus package this week, the destruction being wrought by the European Central Bank is economic as well as monetary. Uh, and they went on to say, as the purchasing power of the currency declines, public demand for it will increase, not because it's wanted per se, but because its purchase, purchasing power is declining faster uh, than it is being pushed into circulation. Uh, welcome to the everything bubble whipped up by American and British neo-Keynesian policymakers who are now increasingly cornered by their own monetary fallacies. And we've also got to remember that the same Andrew Bailey uh, back in October last year uh, said this, uh, I would not wish to suggest that we've hit the limits of quantitative easing. Uh, we keep that under careful review, but there are, sorry, well, in fact, there is no natural limits is what he said. Um, so uh, that's quite a, quite a statement. The, the money printing has, is what's caused the inflation, not Ukraine. Uh, but the, there's no natural limit to the continuation of the money printing. And not coroni, not, not the virus, right? For sure. Yeah, it's quantitative easing. It's printing money like it's going out of fashion. And this is what the U.S. and Britain have been doing. They're leading the world in this, aren't they? That's uh, in terms of running the 24-hour uh, hyperinflationary printing press. And it's so convenient, Mike, that our politicians are so eager to find a scapegoat for the economic problems, whether it's Putin or whether it's little Caroni, who's hiding behind something ready to pounce out at any moment and throw us into the turmoil of a global pandemic. Isn't that convenient? Yes. So what's that done to U.S. trade? Well, let's look at the uh, U.S. economy for a minute. I'm sorry, this isn't great news. U.S. trade deficit surged to a record high, $109 billion in March. That's topping the 100 billion mark for the first time in history. This is historic. Okay, let's just take a look at what that looks like. And for those who are economically illiterate, pay attention to this part here. That's what you call a dip. And it's a really substantial as well. And we'll bring in uh, Joe Biden in a minute to take a look at this. But this deficit exceeded forecasts and is likely to be the biggest indicator is why the GDP decreased 1.4% last quarter. It's probably more than that, Mike, in real terms. Uh, when you start factoring in inflation and things like this, so much of the damage gets hidden, doesn't it? Right. Uh, in the inflation of the money. Well, let's bring in Joe. He's Eventually, he's going to get around to working. He's a bit slow. Give him time. Here he comes. There is President Joe Biden. Joe's trying to make sense of all this. Uh, but really, Mike, it's kind of above his head uh, at the moment, uh, seeing that he's only really compass mentis for about two to three hours uh, per day. So there is the U.S. economy. That's the global powerhouse there. That is the head of the uh, rules-based uh, international order. And it doesn't look very good, Mike. No. It doesn't look good at all. Now, let's take another look at this. This is the ruble. This is the Russian currency. We're all told that this just got destroyed because of sanctions. Remember that? Back, I do remember that, yes. Back in March, uh, oh, oh, Biden said, 
the, the, the currency has been obliterated. This is what he said about the Russian currency. So we're saying, got rubles. This is what everybody's asking now. Have you got rubles? Have you got rubles? And let's just take a look at how the ruble is actually doing. You won't see this covered in the press this week, Mike, but look at that. 65 Russian rubles to the dollar as of yesterday. What is this? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that's a three-year high. Ruble versus the dollar. Unprecedented global sanctions, a total global canceling embargo against Russia. And look at this. This was, if you put your money in rubles uh, before February, you would have doubled your money. Yes. You would have doubled your money, or right around the time when sanctions came. And we were saying, get, buy rubles, buy rubles. And of course, you would have doubled your money. So if you're a big-time, high-rolling investor, that would have been a really canny move. But guess what? Some of the Wall Street banks did just that, didn't they? Uh, they did. They took, they took positions on rubles, and they're laughing all the way uh, to the bank. The only person that's not laughing is your average working class and middle class American, North American, European person in Britain. You're not laughing all the way to the bank. But the, uh, the, the men in the suits in the city of London and Wall Street, they are laughing. And they will continue to laugh at us. And we'll talk a little bit more about sanctions in a second. But uh, just before we get to that, uh, let's just... Uh, do our usual ad slot here. If you like what the UK Column's doing and you would like to support us, then please head over to uh, community.ukcolumn.org uh, and there are options for you to help us there. And you'd be very welcome in our community and or you could uh, support us via the shop uh, or please do share our material that you find on the various platforms. Uh, a quick advertisement here for uh, an upcoming conference. This is the Better Way Conference taking place uh, May 20th to 22nd in Bath, I believe. Uh, the solutions-based focused event brings together leaders from around the world with three exciting days of learning, exploring, creating, collaborating. This is mostly uh, COVID-related stuff. It's been organized by Tess Laurie uh, and the World Council for Health. Uh, and I'm glad to say that uh, Brian uh, spoke to Tess Laurie uh, a couple of days ago, uh, and he's hoping to publish that uh, interview on the UK Column website uh, this afternoon or uh, tomorrow. So. Um, do look out for that and look out for that event as well. It looks like a good event. There's a lot of speakers. Yes. I think there's there's three days is totally packed. So there's pretty much something for everybody there. I yes, think. I believe there are no uh, in-person, because it is a live event. There is a mixture of live and, and virtual. Um, there are no in-person tickets left, I believe. Uh, if you want to take part in that, it's virtual only. Um, okay, where does that take us then? So uh, uh, let's head over to Ukraine and see what the latest is. Well, the war just got a little bit more serious last night, and you don't see a lot of reporting on this. This is significant. Uh, as you, we, I think we reported on this program previously, the, uh, the, the Moscow, the Russian flagship, was sunk, uh, what was it, weeks ago? Yes. Uh, and there's been no really official explanation. Ukraine's taking credit for the sinking with Neptune missiles. Uh, Russia's denying, saying it was a fire on board or some sort of accident. Um, a lot of sailors apparently died. This is just off the coast of Crimea right. uh, in the Black Sea. Now the United States is now saying openly, Mike, according to the Washington Post, that the U.S. provided intelligence that helped Ukraine sink this warship. Let's take a look at this uh, here. So the United States provided uh, Ukraine with intelligence that helped Kiev identify, attack, and sink the Russian flagship uh, of Russia's Black Sea Fleet, the Moskva. Uh, and this is basically what well, they're saying is the most uh, dramatic success on the battlefield in the 71-day war. Why is this significant? Well, this means that uh, you know NATO is now uh, officially in the war, Mike. 
Um, so uh, this, you, you can't say that this was leaked to the Post um, and it's fake news. Mm. The U.S. would never take credit for something like that. Um, and so they're, they're saying that we didn't actually do anything to sink it. We just provided some intelligence help and whatnot. I'm viewing this as an escalation uh, in the conflict. Yes. The, the, the U.S., Britain, uh, some of the NATO countries, they fully intend to escalate this conflict. This, this I think, was a signal. This is a salvo that, that really potentially is a real war is coming. So if you've been worried about World War III and you're saying, well, it can't happen, no, they're going to pull off short. Uh, no, NATO is, is absolutely poised uh, to instigate World War III in this sense. They want to get involved. They're testing the waters here with this. This type of a story in a DC rag like the Washington Post will really also be a kind of a, a litmus test. Uh, in terms of public reaction. Right. And they're going to see how the Beltway reaction, how the punditry reacts. And if, if the reaction seems uh, sympathetic or okay, uh, they might move a little bit more uh, forward aggressively. Uh, well, look, Patrick, just before we came on air, uh, there was some breaking news that another Russian ship has been hit. And uh, so undoubtedly, um, similar circumstances. So well, if you look at the responses from, from the Russian ministry and from uh, President Putin's office, they will respond uh, in kind. Mm. Um, so what does that mean? Does that mean in the region? Does this mean this war is going to expand? What, what are our leaders planning to do and not telling us uh, in terms of expanding this war? Uh, because after all, Russia hasn't attacked any NATO countries. So why, why does NATO want to expand the conflict? Well, uh, later in the program, we'll be uh, hearing from the first sea lord who's just been speaking for the first time since he took up the job a few months ago. And he's uh, expressing uh, warnings about uh, expansion of the war. And uh, well, my view is, I don't know what, you're, what you think, Patrick, my view is that the intention is to see this war expand. That's part of the reason why uh, we are pumping so much uh, resource into it. I, th I think, I think there, there are interests involved, particularly in the US and Britain, that want to see this war expand, or at least want to uh, leave the option open to have a, a wider world war. And I think that they've managed to co-opt enough people and get enough people involved, dupe countries like Sweden into pumping weapons in, so they have no other choice than to join NATO or Finland, for instance. Right. Finland have got mercenaries or militias in there mm. already. We've already seen photos of those. Um, but so they're pushing the situation whereby the only explanation they could give to us, the public, is that, sorry, we're at war now. Mm. That, that's, that, that's the get out clause. The get out clause for all of the things that the U.S., that its allies have done to push the situation to where it got to in February, i.e. Uh, the Donbass, Minsk Accords, the coup in Kiev in 2014, their answer to this, I'm talking about Washington, London, is to, to, is to actually start a war so that we can no longer uh, hold our governments to account as to why they pushed the situation to this point to begin with. And if that sounds like a crazy uh, way of looking at this. Um, if you want to see crazy, just listen to the statements that are coming out of the mouths of our political leaders and our mainstream media for the last two months. It's absolutely insane. Uh, okay, so uh, what's happening in Azovstal then? Well, this, this is one of those uh, dramas that just typifies uh, where we're at uh, in this whole story here. And let's just take a look at this. This is an aerial shot. So Azovstal, this is the uh, uh, industrial sector there in Mariupol, uh, just there. This is where the last holdouts are of the Azov battalions, uh, the, the, the Ukrainian forces that are 
hold up in there. And they're not just hold up on their own, Mike. They've got civilians with them. Uh, and so this is definitely, you, you should look at this as a hostage situation. We'll, be, we'll show you more on that in a minute. But Russia's basically uh, given them numerous opportunities to surrender over the last month. They haven't taken it. They've decided to buckle down and hope for an international rescue team to come and take these soldiers and they're wounded out uh, when, in fact, the corridor has been open. They just do not want to surrender. Mm. And they haven't been able to uh, make this case in the international community yet um, as to you know why they won't surrender. They're saying, well, we, we, we're not going to surrender. We need a, a third-party country to take us out by helicopter. It's Turkey or whatever. It's just gotten insane. You notice how the Western media is not covering this anymore because it's gone completely over the edge of reality mm. uh, now. And so uh, we'll take a look at what the situation... So this is Russian artillery from last night or from this morning, sorry. I, I think this is pretty pretty new. Uh, this is circulating on Telegram at the moment on numerous channels. Mm. Uh, we have every reason to believe this is absolutely authentic, of course, uh, and recent. Uh, and this is from South Front here. This is a website that's actually been sanctioned by the UK government. It's got a lot of good factual information on it that doesn't exist in the mainstream. Here, here is a schematic of uh, an overhead shot, Mike, a drone shot of the Avistol uh, uh, complex there, and you can see the tunnels and the bunkers. They, they've sort of tried to map out where mm. the final militants are uh, within this. Um, so this is a very helpful little schematic uh, here. And uh, if you're watching, uh, you know, on some of the media coverage, you'll see this guy. Uh, this is the uh, the holdout commander Palomar, aka Kalina, and uh, he brings he comes out. There's another uh, one of these uh, his colleagues that does this as well. They make these pleas, they put it out in the media and social media, help us, rescue us, we're trapped down here, the Russians are bombing us, and so forth. Um, of course, he's not saying that the, the green corridors have been open repeatedly uh, for weeks now, and they're just not electing, and they're keeping civilians there and claiming that they're victims. So, I mean, we, we spoke about this in previous programs. So this is kind of a ridiculous situation that's um, kind of getting a little bit long in the tooth. Uh, to, to put it lightly. So this is Kalina here doing one of his appeals yesterday. I mean, the other guy is even more amazing. He's, he's saying that they're victims. They're victims of Russian aggression. Can you believe it? So no, they're no longer combatants. They managed to make the postmodernist transition from combatant to, to victim. Isn't this what happened in East Aleppo? Uh, yeah, but this, this is on a whole nother level. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So, so uh, Marie Zakharova had something to say about this where we're watching her Telegram channel here. This is what she said for two weeks. Um, as they once did in Budyonovsk, uh, Kiev terrorists are holding civilians hostage at Avistol, preventing them from leaving, from leaving the location. Now, the Western media is going to look at this saying, this is Russian disinformation, right? Yes. This is Russian. No, don't listen to her. This is Maria Zakharova, Russian foreign ministry spokesperson here. And she continues, the Russian Ministry of Defense constantly announced humanitarian corridors guaranteeing life and assistance to those who left. This is actually factual. This has also been corroborated, and they're cooperating with international groups, including the Red Cross, uh, on this. Okay, so here we go. The, the UN got involved. The Red Cross got involved. Now it's obvious to the whole world that it was the armed Ukrainian nationalist formations that did not want to release people there. The West and Kiev cannot get out. So the panic has just been incredible, hasn't it? Mm. 
You've had Macron there. Macron's calling Putin. They're, they want to open up a green corridor. Clearly, there's Western mercenaries or some kind of operatives down there, some important people. They didn't manage to get out by helicopter. Helicopters were shot down, failed rescue attempts before. Uh, so so we, 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 we saw some of the civilians have been let out recently, Mike, in the last couple of days. And some of them have been interviewed. Those interviews have been disseminated across multiple media outlets. We're going to look at a couple of these interviews of civilians that have come out. And by the end of these three clips, we'll, you, will have, you will know very, very certainly why they didn't uh, leave before when they were offered, the civilians were offered the green corridors over the last few weeks. It'll be very, very clear. Let's look at the first clip. The subtitles are at the bottom. Read very closely and we'll discuss after. Let's roll the first one. Мы знали, мы знали о коридорах Израиля, у нас было радио, мы ловили волны, и мы знали, что есть коридоры, мы не могли до них добраться, нас не выпускали из завода. Нас держали в бункере и просто не выпускали из завода. Мы по радио слушали, коридор, 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 а как нам туда? Вот нас военные не выпускают, говорят, мы вас туда не выпустим, там нехорошие люди, они вас сейчас расстреляют, они вам сейчас вот, ну, короче, туда вас, вам нельзя. Ну и прикрывались, типа, ну мы же за вашу безопасность переживаем, да, поэтому возвращайтесь в бункер. Бункер самостоятельно, мы работаем в заводе вместе с мужем. Да, мы самостоятельно пришли туда 26 февраля, понимая, что это безопасное место. Конечно, мы об этом не могли подумать. Это гражданский объект, это место, где мы работали. Мы не могли представить, что это, поверьте, если бы я понимала, что со мной там такое случится, я бы, естественно, туда не пошла. Нет, мы шли туда спасать свои жизни и жизни своих детей, мы понимаем что это ну как бы надежное укрытие уже не могли уже все уже не пускали видимо я так подозреваю что они уже пришли с целью того что мы здесь кроме за ну я так из радио узнавали вообще военные нам не доносили нет это не чтобы пришли военные и сказали ребят коридор выходите нет такого не было мы знали информацию но из радио но мы пытались выходить а нас не пускали Семья решила единогласно украинцев. Но если мы и решим вернуться, то только в Мариуполь, но не на Украину. Скажем так, Украина как государство, да, вот как я оно для меня умерло. Мне очень обидно было, что ну, вот так с нами So that's one uh, witness that came out recently saying that they weren't told uh, by the militants right. about by Ukrainian forces. They just weren't told there were humanitarian corridors open for civilians. Okay, so that's that, that makes sense that, you know, if they didn't have the information, they probably thought, you know, we're stuck here, mm -hmm. basically. Makes sense. So here's the next, uh, the next clip. We'll move on. And this is slightly different. This is a, uh, an older uh, woman here, but pay very close attention. Um, to what she's saying, and the nuance is very important. Let's go ahead and roll this. Ну насчет коридора мы не знали. Вот, ну, насколько я вот знаю, вот, ну мы же общались, у нас приличное количество людей было. Вот, что вроде бы как был 
зеленый коридор. Но нам об этом никто ничего не говорил. У нас некоторые пытались уйти, их возвращали. Поэтому мы сидели. Если бы мы знали, то, и, наверное, и пеши бы ушли. Значит, сегодня первый раз за все время я вот с ними поднялась наверх. Увидели небо, прошлись по земле. Кроме бункера мы ничего не видели. Это у нас была надежда на то, что решится вопрос. Ну, у нас было сразу 71 человек. Вот. Кто смог, ушел, как они ушли, несколько человек с семьями. На свой страх и риск. Мы слушали, чтобы, не дай бог, нигде не стрельнуло, чтобы они перебрались. Вчера приехала сюда группа, это наша группа. Вот. А сегодня у нас 21 человек, уже последние мы. Мы так переживали, вдруг что-то сорвется, и опять начнут, это уже, наверное, было бы... Мы бы... Мы... Я лично вам говорю, я там был последний в течение этой недели, каждый день режим тишины организовывался, вот, и были шли переговоры о том, что это все ждать. Well, uh, it, uh, you described it earlier as a hostage situation. That seems to have been what it was. People were being, shall we say, encouraged to remain underground because they were being threatened uh, that there were people above ground there to kill them. So uh, I think that's pretty clear. And the Ukrainian militants were clearly, it seems like they're withholding information to the civilians right. as to the availability of this. Now, this clip uh, is probably the... Uh, This is the piece de la resistance of the, uh, the, the, the testimonies coming out. Pay very close attention to the end of this, um, because this will provide you with one of the answers. Um, were there people down there that did not elect to go out because of political reasons? Very possibly. Let's watch this. Остались дети гражданские. В нашем бункере двое маленьких деток, 4 и 7 лет. Детки 10-12 лет. Больше 10 детей только в нашем бункере. А он не один. Страшные авиаудары, стены дрожат. Наши четыре этажа просто сложились. Пару прилетов и, и, и убежище не будет. Попадания были и в убежище. Состояние детей вы представляете. Сегодняшний день, да, 55, 11 выехали, вот нас сейчас трое, 40 с лишним осталось. Спасибо нашим воинам, помогают и продуктами, и всем остальным, морально очень приятно вообще. Сегодня мне пообещали, что меня вывезут в Запорожье, поэтому я рискнула вот и поехала. Очень много людей здесь еще осталось, они боятся ехать, потому что им никто не дает гарантии, что их довезут до Запорожья, как обещают. И все будут ждать, пока доберется наш вот этот первый, не знаю, как он называется, гум-конвой, наверное. И если все будет нормально, то здесь очень много детей, здесь очень много женщин. И если все будет нормально, то гражданские будут выезжать. Ну, надеюсь, доехать в Украину куда-то. Была эвакуация два раза, и два раза взрывалась. Из-за ежедневных обстрелов нельзя было нос высунуть. 
Вас тут не обижали? Нет, не обижали. Не обижали, не помните. И на русском мы разговаривали смело. Она нас Бог дом разбомбила. Да. И мы А что раньше не выходили, ну, там же ж, как бы русские предлагали, там зеленый коридор. Нет, спасибо, нас это не интересовало информация. Мы другой политической стороны поддерживаем. Хотели бы жить в стране, в которой родились, родились да, в которой жили. Жили, строились, учились, все-все-все на свете, дружили, любили. На родину. Домой. Хотя родина наша здесь, но подальше. Но в Украину, конечно. Запорожье говорили. Okay, so that that was clearly a different group of people than the than the first two clips that you showed there. So were those uh, ethnic Ukrainians, therefore? Uh, maybe more pro, more pro Kiev. Yes. Possibly ethnic Ukrainians. So, uh, but the key was at the very end, and we'll just bring this uh, this image up here on screen uh, for you to look at. Was this lady here? You remember her mm -hmm. uh, just towards the end, and she was asked a question here: Why didn't you go out before? And uh, he said. It seems the Russians offered a green corridor, and this was her answer. Thank you. We were not interested in this information. We support politics of other country. Excuse the translation, yeah. of course. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that, that's basically the answer to that question uh, was, was that, uh, basically. So, you know, it could have been a political uh, uh, situation there as well with some of the people who are either family members of the militants um, or you know, cl uh, clearly allied with them or something like this. Mm. So the bottom line is there is opportunity for all the civilians to leave, and there has been for weeks. So this drama is completely unnecessary, uh, and n no wonder the mainstream media in the West, there's no shock horror, no virtue signaling for the people in Avistol. They've just ignored it because it's inconvenient. These militants, these Azov militants, some of them with neo-Nazi affiliations, mm. have taken civilians as hostages, literal human shields. That's what happened. And where's our media? Where's the outrage? Nothing. Nothing indeed. Uh, there has been outrage, of course, from the uh, UK government against Russia, and it continues. And so more sanctions uh, have been announced in the last day or two. Um, so here we have uh, Russia cut off from UK accounting consulting, PR, and other services was the graphic that Liz Truss was pushing out. Um, so uh, the new measures, they say, will mean Russia's businesses can no longer benefit from the UK's world-class accountancy, management consultancy, and PR services. That must be a loss for them, uh, which account for 10% of Russia's imports in these sectors. Russia has been heavy rel heavily reliant on Western services companies for the production and export of manufactured goods. And today's measures uh, will further ratchet up economic pressure on Putin's siege economy is the language that they're using. The language is just incredible. So let's see what uh, Liz, the lovely Liz, had to say. Doing business with Putin's regime is morally bankrupt and it helps fund a war machine that is causing untold suffering across Ukraine. Uh, cutting Russia's access to, Britain's, uh, to British services will put more pressure on the Kremlin, ultimately help Putin, ensure Putin fails in Ukraine, okay. Well, well that, that's interesting. So she believes that by doing this, um, that Russia's gonna lose the war or it's gonna change the course of the conflict. Uh, that's what's that's, inferred, isn't that's it? That's what she's saying. Whether she, uh, I doubt very much she believes it, but anyway, that's what she's saying. 
Um, so where does that take us? Well, another company that they've decided to sanction was this one, uh, Evraz. Um, so they announced that Evraz PLC has been sanctioned. This is a steel manufacturing and mining company. It operates uh, in what they describe as sectors of strategic significance to the government of Russia. So Evraz uh, produces 28% of all Russian railway wheels, 97% of rail tracks, um, and uh, along with existing measures. This will further deter companies operating in strategic sectors in Russia. Uh, so this is the language that is being used. So let's bring uh, the lovely Chris Philp uh, on screen, uh, tech and digital minister. I think I've spelled his name wrong. I apologize for that. Uh, for too long, RT and Sputnik have churned out dangerous nonsense dressed up as serious news to justify Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and that statement is designed to justify further sanctions on the media uh, in Russia. Uh, he went on to say, uh, these outlets have already been booted off uh, airwaves in Britain and, have, and we've barred anyone from doing business with them. Uh, now we've moved to pull the plug on their websites, social media accounts and apps uh, to further stop the spread of their lies. Ha have, they, have they mentioned or given an example of any of these lies, even one, I've not seen throughout this whole process? And by the way, where are the Ofcom investigations? I thought Ofcom launched 16 investigations against RT. They, they barred them from the UK before the investigations were finished. Where are the examples of the uh, breaking Ofcom rules? We, we don't need to see those anymore. It's, it's, it's I mean, just a done deal. Where is the disinformation? It's like, uh, it's like data on uh, Pfizer and from Pfizer and so on. We don't need to see that anymore because it's a done deal. This is the same, same exercise. Uh, they're bad, they're wrong, they're propaganda. Yes. And that's end of story. And that's it. So two of the Russian media outlets that have been sanctioned include uh, South Frontier, uh, they, as you said earlier, are putting out uh, some useful image. I mean, if you want to get the Russian side of things, there's no way to, to get that from the UK media. So South Front is a, a good source for what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. And in Syria and in Turkey and in Iraq and in Yemen, all around the world, South Front is probably one of the be better, if not the best, all around military news site. You get actual data, you get battle maps, it's very even-handed, also very critical of, of the Kremlin right. South Front uh, on its reporting. You just go read some of the recent reports. Um, and another organization is Strategic Culture Institute um, and another well-regarded outlet in general. Yeah, including some former British diplomats write for this website, Mike. Uh, it's, uh, it's got some great writers, some great analysts, but they don't like the conclusions of the opinion and analysis on this website. So this is, if you think this is okay, a, a website like this, is, United States have sanctioned this as well. They just can't take the fact that the analysis and the opinions on it don't jibe with what the Western party line is, even though the majority of writers on there, if not all of them are from the West. Right. So is that a problem? Apparently it is. Uh, well, the UK government says that the UK will continue to work closely with social media platforms and allies to uh, uncover, expose and counter Kremlin disinformation operations. Uh, and uh, so, I mean, they're, they're talking about working with uh, Internet service providers as well as social media companies. We were, we're well used to seeing uh, posts taken down by social media companies. Uh, but this, the implication of what's being said here is that there'd be blocks placed uh, on being able to access RT and Sputnik uh, across the I mean, At the moment, we can still access their websites if we wish to, um, but uh, it, it looks like the government is moving in the direction of uh, 
creating a, a great firewall of, of Britain. So if you quote any of those websites, in order, if you take data from them and quote them in your research, if you're an academic or if you're a journalist or if you're a blogger, d does that mean that you're guilty of spreading Russian disinformation? Uh, are, are they, they need to be clear on this. Is it, is it the opinion and analysis that's the problem or is it just the fact that it has some link to Russia? Uh, both. But it can't be both. Not, not if we're going to have a uh, free and open society. Uh, well, that's the problem. The, if, if, you think think that's... if you think it's okay in this instance, then basically you're giving the government carte blanche to do it across the board for anybody, for anything, including COVID and including vaccines if you're passionate about those issues and health and things like that. Yes. You're giving them carte blanche. Um, so let's look at uh, what the EU's up to. Here's uh, Joseph Borrell, uh, the European Commission High Representative, who I, you might otherwise call European Commission Foreign Secretary. Uh, and he said, uh, we are working on the sixth package of sanctions, which aims to de-swift more banks, list disinformation actors, and tackle oil import, imports. And of course, the, uh, the big topic of discussion at the moment is the issue of Russian oil and gas. Um, but just before we get on to Russian oil and gas, uh, the EU has announced today that uh, Putin's girlfriend, uh, Alina uh, Kabaeva, uh, is going to be included in this sixth tranche of uh, sanctions. So they're uh, aiming for her as well. As... What does she have to do with the, uh, the war in Ukraine? Uh, nothing at all, but uh, she is um, clearly too close to Vlad. And uh, so that, that doesn't work does, for them. Do they think that by sanctioning Putin's girlfriend that she's going to have a word in Putin's ear and maybe twist his arm and maybe he'll... He'll change his foreign policy, or he'll he'll go against the uh, the the polling in Russia that's overwhelmingly in favor uh, of their military intervention. It's uh, we're not making this up. It's just the facts. Yes. So I guess those sanctions are going to change all that. I guess. Yeah, I guess. But uh, coming back to the oil situation, here's Euro News uh, because it's not all plain sailing. Sailing. The EU is uh, attempting to push forward with with oil and gas, uh, cutting off Russian oil and gas from, from the European nations. Uh, but not all European nations are quite into that idea. Uh, so Russian oil ban plans are like dropping an atomic bomb on Hungary's economy, says Viktor Orban. Uh, if we look at Czech Republic, they're saying they'll support the Russian oil uh, import ban, but only if it's uh, postponed for two to three years. I mean, the, the EU is talking about two to three months, not two to three years. So, so there's no, uh, you know, this doesn't work for, for the Czech Republic either. Uh, and uh, well, here's the chief executive of Shell, and he's saying this is a ridiculous idea. He's saying bringing more liquid na uh, natural gas into the market, increasing liquefaction and regasification capacity and raising pipeline supplies from North Africa and Norway are reasonable things. But he's saying that these will take time. You can't, you can't expect this to be an overnight uh, situation. Uh, and so he said there's no way to simply buy more pipeline gas and LNG to completely replace all the Russian gas that we currently consume. This is not feasible. So, you know, the, the message is absolutely clear. The message from countries is we can't do this. Uh, the message from uh, Shell is you can't do this, but the EU wants to plow ahead. Oh, and by the way, BP is, um, the bottom fell out of BP because of all this. Nobody's talking about that in the press. Hugely embarrassing. But beyond that, to buy LNG from the United States, liquefied natural gas, it's massively more expensive than getting your cheap uh, uh, fixed five-year fixed-term contract price uh, from Gazprom, for instance. So what effect is that going to have on inflation? Uh, it's going to drive it up. And guess what? The United States shale business, fracking business, uh, is basically having a field day right now 
they've managed to run what's really an old-fashioned mafia protection racket. Don't buy from him. Buy from us. And by the way, he's dangerous, and you're going to need guns to protect yourself from him. This is literally straight out of the gangs of New York, but just kind of scaled up for a geopolitical theater. I mean, people, it's not difficult to see. Um, Russian gas being replaced by U.S. two to three times the price. Mm. U.S. liquefied natural gas, fracked gas. You couldn't make it up. Um, so what is Europe going to do in the meantime? They are certainly going to be bringing in lots more LNG from the United States. Uh, but uh, Reuters here has this article, Europe will buy Russian oil via third countries. Uh, well, that's one option for them. That, but that's coming. That's it's coming. already happening. It, well, that's what the Russians are saying. And, and you're saying it's already happening. But it doesn't end there. Uh, because if we look at this, Russia is relabeling oil tankers destination unknown to quietly deliver energy to Europe. So basically, what does destination unknown mean? Uh, well, here it is. The use of destination unknown label means that the oil is being taken uh, to larger ships at sea and mixed in with oil from other destination uh, destinations, confusing its origin. Uh, it's a long-running practice first used by other sanctioned countries, including Iran and Venezuela. So, uh, you know, the headlines may say maybe, maybe we're going to see Joseph Burrell or Ursula von der Leyen at some point in the next couple of months saying, uh, well, we've done it. We've cut off. We're not taking any, any Russian oil anymore. We have succeeded. Uh, but the chances are they'll be, as usual, lying through their teeth. We've stood in solidarity against for democracy against the evil uh, Putin regime. Uh, so Bulgaria is one of those countries, Mike, that basically under pressure from the U.S. embassy basically stopped uh, buying Russian gas. So they're basically going to be siphoning it off a third party country. Yes. Could be Slovakia, could be Czech Republic or something like that. They'll pipe it in that way. So like their hands are clean. Uh, in public. So we're not buying Russian gas, but they're getting it in the back door. Guess what? They're just going to pay a little bit more. The middlemans, the traders are going to make a little bit more. Russia hasn't actually lost any volume of business, but everybody can virtue signal in Brussels mm -hmm. and in London and in Washington. And everybody looks good and can wave their Ukrainian flag and uh, shout Slava Ukraina like they've actually achieved something where they actually haven't. All they've done is drive up the price of gas and energy for you, the consumer, for the working class and the middle class. The political classes couldn't care less because they're not paying for it anyway themselves. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Boris headed over to India to try to persuade uh, Mr. Modi uh, to break ties with Russia and to criticize Russia for what's been going on in Ukraine. And Modi was having none of it. Uh, a couple of days following that, Ursula von der Leyen headed over to uh, India to try to get uh, Modi to do the same. Uh, we reported that at the time. Uh, well, Modi has been in Europe uh, all this week. And uh, so he was in, uh, uh, let's see, where did he start off? Uh, he was in Denmark. He's been to Germany. He's been in France for talks with Macron. Um, and uh, the encouragement, uh, and he's now been to visit uh, Ursula herself. Um, and uh, in all this uh, uh, discussion and diplomacy that's going on, they have been trying to get uh, Modi to agree to break ties with Russia. And at this point, he's having none of it. So uh, they, uh, they uh, for example, with Germany, he wouldn't uh, sign or he wouldn't agree to a joint press conference. Um, so he did uh, agree, agree to a declaration where Chancellor Schultz said uh, or gave, offered some condemnation of what happened has been going on in Ukraine. But Modi himself simply said that there should be further peace talks. 
Um, so all this has been going on uh, in order to try to woo India away. They are desperate to get Wind uh, India separate from uh, from the uh, from the, the, the broken away from Putin and Russia. Yeah, and probably next China as well. So yeah, that's that's the game, isn't it? And Pakistan um, as well. Uh, but it. What's Russia going to do? Russia is not sitting on its hands, of course, busy in Ukraine. But uh, TASS pushed this out a couple of days ago. Uh, Putin signs decree on Russia's new tit-for-tat sanctions. So Russia is going to start sanctioning the rest of the world. Um, so they're saying that uh, due to unfriendly actions which contradict international law by the United States of America and foreign states and international organizations that joined them, directed at illegitimately depriving the Russian Federation, the citizens of the Russian Federation, and Russian legal entities of their property rights and restricting their property rights, and therefore they are going to start doing the same. So uh, this uh, resulted in uh, some uh, desperate headlines from the West. Here is uh, Reuters, Putin puts West on notice. Moscow can terminate exports and deals. So they're obviously concerned about this. Uh, the Reuters particularly concerned about this. Um, and uh, well, it is a problem, and once again, we find ourselves in the, the position of having to say, Patrick, uh, that the only people that are being hurt by sanctions, Western imposed sanctions, is the West. It's us. We're we're shooting ourselves in the foot at the very least, committing collective suicide uh, at the worst. It is. It's a collective economic suicide pact. Now, Russia is being hurt by sanctions. There's no doubt about that to some degree. But if you look at the, the, the volume of the effect that it's had on the Western economy, I think by orders of magnitude, we just showed you how the ruble has bounced back even better than before mm -hmm. uh, the, the sanctions three-year high, uh, that it's had a negative effect on the Western economy, on the Western working class and middle class. And it seems like the elites, again, this is this continued theme, whether it's from Davos or the G7 or just listening to our politicians on a daily basis, they really couldn't care less about the cost of living of anybody in the working or middle class. They couldn't care less. They're telling you, suck it up, do it for Zelensky, do it for democracy. We're sorry if you're gonna go into fuel poverty, but you know, think about Zelensky uh, while, while you're putting your third jumper on uh, in the winter. You know, that's the attitude of our political class, of our mainstream media class, and it's absolutely bankrupt. Well, it certainly won't be Zelensky's fleece that you're putting on. We'll come on to that just, mm -hmm. just in a second. But uh, before we get there, let's put uh, James Karaoke on. He's the UK's Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations. Uh, and he was uh, giving a statement to the UN high-level meeting on peace-building financing. And it was mostly about how could the City of London help with, uh, with building peace uh, around the world. Uh, this is what he had to say. The United Kingdom remains fully committed to maximizing investment in UN conflict prevention and peace building. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, really? Uh, because here's Boris uh, at the Brave Ukraine event, which took place yesterday. <laughs> and this is all about raising money for the Ukrainian war. For weapons. For weapons. Uh, so, so let's so pass the hat around for, for some arms trafficking. Uh, wow. Absolutely. So let's just have a look and see what uh, Boris had to say. Here he is. Uh, let me conclude by saying, take, oh, sorry, let, let me conclude by saying, take part in today's charity auction. Whether you're bidding for Vladimir's fleece, a snip at £50,000, I want much higher bids than that, he said. Fleece is the operative word. There. Well, indeed. Uh, or you're bidding for a tour of Kiev with the mayor of Kiev. And uh, I've had a tour of... With yes, Vitaly Klitschko. Yes. Wow. Yes. I've had a tour of <laughs> Kiev with Mayor Klitschko. It's a beautiful city, well worth it. Dig deep. 
So my question, Patrick, is... War tourism. Is, is, yes, indeed. <laughs> is the UK committed to peace building or not? They've, uh, they've uh, lost their bloody mind. <laughs> I, it doesn't look like it. It seems like this, the, the war tourism, charity auctions for weapons, for tours of the war zone. I mean, this is great. Some celebrities can get involved in this. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and look, uh, I want to uh, make the, you know, many people have, have said uh, the, the whole uh, Ukraine Nazi narrative is wrong. Uh, many people are wrong in saying that, but uh, let's provide a little bit more uh, on this. Here is Voltaire Net, uh, undoubtedly, uh, if not already, soon to be on the list of sanctioned uh, websites. But uh, anyway, uh, or websites uh, de-platformed de for pushing uh, Russian disinformation. Uh, this headline is Declassification of Documents Exposing Bandar Banderite Crimes. Uh, and thanks to Vanessa for this, she sent, sent this over to me. Um, so I'm just going to read what it says here because it's worth it. Uh, the Russian government has declassified documents relating to the trials of uh, Banderites at the end of the Second World War. Uh, these documents bring light to the atrocious war crimes perpetrated by the Bandarites against Ukrainian civilians in 1944 and 1945 during the retreat of the Nazis uh, faced with the advancing Soviet army. In particular, a document from the ministry devoted to the uh, Eastern territories occupied by the Third Reich, headed by Alfred Rosenberg, uh, uncovers a plan for the complete annihilation of the Donbass, and its population by Nazi forces and their Bandarite collaborators. Uh, and they've provided a link so that you can go and look at these yourself. Uh, these events were ignored by present in present-day Ukraine. Indeed, since the end of the Second World War, the Bandarites and the Nazis of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations uh, have patiently rewritten their history. Uh, out of any reality, their version has become the current Holy Bible for Ukrainians, is what it says. But the point here is, that what we're witnessing today on the Ukrainian side, many of the players, a large proportion of the players, are the literal descendants of these Bandarites that the, these documents are talking about. And their, their uniforms are emblazoned with the same symbols. Uh, there's a variation of the Waffen-SS. Uh, so in this, this is something that's being casually ignored and downplayed um, by the Western media. Our politicians will not uh, mention it at all. And meanwhile, we have all this uh, blathering about the far right, this, the far right, that, January 6th in America. Here we are, we are shipping weapons to actual Nazis, actual Nazis, where you have to, in some re uh, some of the battalions, you have to have a swastika tattoo uh, in order to belong to the battalion. These aren't battalions, by the way, they're full regiments, okay? This is an institutional um, issue in Ukraine, and it's, this is the driving force. They are the vanguard politically and militarily in Ukraine. And Z Vladimir Zelensky is sitting uh, at the top of that. And so he is, he, you could say he's a, he's, a, he's a prisoner to this movement, or who knows, he's using it, he's riding the wave of US support, using these Nazi factions, these militant factions. They've been, they've been pumping them with cash and weapons, Mike, since 2014, right. uh, pr pretty aggressively. But as that documentation you showed, uh, shows the historical pedigree of it. We've showed other things as well on this show in the past. This is a U.S. policy of backing these militants, backing Nazis. that goes all the way back to the end of World War II. Right. So it, th that's historical record. Sorry to point that out. If you think that's Russian disinformation, then you should go scream at the, uh, the historians and the PhDs uh, who've documented all this in the West over the years. Right, so let's, uh, let's bring this graphic back on screen then. Uh, let's talk about some war propaganda. 
this is what it's really about. And But, you know, the question we're going to ask is, does it really make any difference on the ground? We're going to show you some absolutely incredible uh, war propaganda. Now, let's be clear, looking at this, uh, everyone uses propaganda in a war. No doubt about that. Even the third-party proxy backers like the West, like NATO, of course, they're, they're, they're really into it. Russia uses propaganda. The U.S. does. Britain does. Everybody does. Ukraine definitely does. Uh, the question is how much and who's using it the most and who's, who's actually lying, been caught lying to their populations uh, in the most egregious fashion. Let's take a look. Here's one, Daily Mail. This is uh, pretty recent. I think it's yesterday, Mike. Russian soldiers are raping Ukrainian men and boys as well as women, says UN war crimes investigator. Now, when you see that UN war crimes, that makes it pretty official, doesn't it? Mm. So you tend to believe that on face value. I know people don't like to read full articles and they only read headlines, uh, but we'll pull in a few interesting quotes out of this here. Um, so here's, here's the person who's in charge of this. This is the special representative on sexual violence, uh, Pramila Patton is her name, uh, UN special representative. You can see the uh, logo board behind here, Mike, uh, Ukraine Media Center. Uh, very similar to, we saw some of these setups um, with Syria there, and she's standing next to Olga uh, Stefanishini, uh, Stefanishina, who is the uh, Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, apparently. She's a very attractive uh, woman here, very professional. You'd, you'd think this is very credible by looking at this setup. You've got the UN involved. This is good. This is playing very well in the West. And so this is what uh, the special representative is saying. The, that rape is cheap because it co its cost is free. Very effective because it does not only affect the victim, it affects whole families, communities, and it's biological warfare. It's psychological warfare. So she's calling it biological warfare, asserting that it's happening, and calling it biological warfare. Right. So this is interesting, a little more up in the ante in terms of, uh, of the sort of theme of this. But let's go further here, and this is where it gets interesting. This is what they're saying. When Ukrainian forces, journalists, and civilians re-entered Irpin, this is where some of the fighting was going on last month, uh, and neighboring Bucha, uh, they discovered hundreds of bodies of civilians that had been raped, tortured, executed, some with their hands tied behind their back. Now, we showed you uh, uh, footage and evidence in the past of Ukrainian uh, soldiers tying, tying the hands of their victims before executing them. So. How do we know that what we're seeing in Bucha after Russian forces leave is in fact the work of Ukrainian militants or Azov battalion militants? Uh, and then the press or UN people are allowed in later and then say that Russians did that. Well, the evidence that's circulating that we've reported on seems to indicate that that's what's happening. Mm. So is this a case of the, uh, of the international uh, well-meaning NGOs here uh, being led around by Ukrainian uh, SBU uh, to get the story that Kiev wants, that Washington wants, right. that London wants. We're just asking this question here because this isn't a hermetically sealed uh, chain of custody situation at right. all. It's a free-for-all, basically. So here's what they're saying. Russians a few days ago killed a young mother and taped her living child to her body and attached a mine between them, says the ambassador. She said the mine was then detonated. Now, this is just an anecdotal story. It sounds kind of amazing, doesn't it? I mean, we haven't heard anything like this before. Um, this is just one of many things that were just kind of thrown in there uh, in this story. I mean, that's just an incredible story. 
So it, did that actually happen? Where's the evidence for this? Well, that's a good question. Let's see. Russia has previously denied targeting civilians and has rejected allegations that its forces have committed war crimes despite mounting evidence. Again, where is the evidence? Well, maybe it's here. She provided no specific details of rape allegations and saying that some of the victims remained in Ukraine were afraid of speaking out for fear of Russian forces returning. So no specific evidence has been provided according to the UN Special Representative. So it's still an open-ended kind of investigation. But the media has already run with the theme. Right. So in, in a way, you can say, are we looking at the war of words here? Are we looking at the propaganda war here? And we only have to go back to this story, which everybody should be familiar with, 2011. This was pushed out and laundered by The Guardian, of all people, and then was repeated and used by the UN ambassador, uh, uh, Susan Rice at the time. Gaddafi supplies troops with Viagra to encourage mass rape, uh, says Susan Rice. This turned out to be total fake news. It, it, was, uh, it was debunked as a hoax about six months later, but it did its job, which, which is it helped to push for that no-fly zone in Libya that turned into NATO's bombing zone. So the, what we're saying is this has happened in the past where they've pushed out completely fake stories, outrageous in the extreme, mm -hmm. but it, it has a sort of a political um, dimension to it, uh, an objective. And so it, are we seeing this in Ukraine? We don't know, but there's certainly a lot of fake stories that we've already proven are fake, mm -hmm. like the mass graves in Mariupol, that was debunked as fake, that was a hoax, there's so many of these. So it's hard to know uh, what's being pushed out, whether it's real or not. And we'll do our best to try to dig into the facts. But let's look at here. Here's another one. This is Hungary denies reports it was warned about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So there's reports circulating. We'll show you who's circulating them. Uh, that uh, Hungary had advanced knowledge of Russia's military operation uh, and planned to take pieces of Ukraine. Uh, land or something like this. So Orban here saying, no, this isn't true. His, his government saying this is completely fake news. This is, I think this is a strategic story that's planted uh, and then circulated in order to create the various fissures that we're seeing right now in Europe. Okay, so let's take a look at this one. This is the response here from Zoltan Kavaks, uh, from the uh, Hungarian spokesperson responding to the fake news. On April 3rd, Hungarians decided that uh, Hungary would not ship weapons to Ukraine uh, while we understand that Ukraine does not welcome our decision, spreading fake news and coming up with lies will not change our position. And look who's pushing this below. That's Peter Murphy. Let's take a closer look at that tweet there. Peter Murphy, Hungary was warned by Putin in advance that there would be attacks on Ukraine, says head of Ukraine's Security Council. For some reason, she believed that she would not be able to take uh, her her part of her territory. So that's the allegation. Hungary is in league with Putin, wants to steal Ukrainian land. So that's Peter Murphy. Who is Peter Murphy? Let's take a look at his Twitter profile. Well, he's an a AFP uh, journalist, Mike. Um, so worked for the AFP. Uh, and what's he doing? He's Well, he's pushing fake news. This seems like a fake news story. Uh, we're pretty confident it is likely to be a fake news story. It does seem like the type of things that get circulated that are purely political. And AFP, we have caught in the past doing that very thing. Mm. Um, so they, do, they don't have the best track record, uh, AFP, especially regarding Syria as an example. Okay, so moving on here, 
Here's one from the Times. We always joke that this is the uh, Deep State's in-house newsletter. Mike, hiding behind the paywall here. Ukrainian counterattack forces Russians to retreat in the east. This is just, uh, yeah, yesterday, I think, or two days ago. So you, this is something interesting. Everybody has been following this war. You've been following this war, Mike. Brian, everybody has been following this war. Where have you ever seen any stories about a Ukrainian counterattack? We're 72 or 73 days in. Have we seen any stories of Ukrainian counterattack? Almost nothing. It's almost like non-existent. And suddenly this, this story comes out of nowhere uh, in the Times. And let's look at the source of the story. Let's go back to this. Put that back up on screen. Let's look at the source. So Russian troops have been forced to retreat from parts of eastern Ukraine after a, quote, significant counteroffensive, uh, which could jeopardize Putin's plans to recapture or capture Donbass. Western defense experts say, where is this story coming out? The Institute for the Study of War in Washington, D.C. I think they've been mentioned several times in this program over the last several weeks. <laughs> it's a think tank. Uh, it's a pro-war think tank. Uh, one of the heads of it's Jack Keane, who's blathering on Fox News every every other day with various conspiracy theories about what the Russian military is doing. Uh, so this is interesting. Institute of the Study of War. Let's take a look at the battle map they provided, Mike, here. And it's interesting. You're, you're literally being gaslit here. They're, they've circled these areas where this apparently this potential counteroffensive here, intense fighting in the last 24 hours. I don't see any substance to this report at all. But if you look, the red area is Russian-held territory. Okay, that's new Russian-held territory. So if, if there's a counteroffensive, I'm wondering where it is and, and how significant it is. And this is indicative of, I think, the misreporting in Western media that's constant, which is that Ukraine's winning, Russia's losing. They keep saying this for months now. Mm. Uh, but actually, the, the facts don't actually uh, lead us to that conclusion. Um, and here's another one. This is interesting. This is Forbes just a couple of days ago. This is very interesting. Over 3,000 civilians killed in Ukraine since Russia invaded, says the UN. So let's take the UN on its word. That's not a lot of civilians if you consider the amount of troops involved uh, in this fight. Uh, you see the urban devastation in Mariupol and cities like this. You'd think that that number would be a lot higher. I mean, by this time in the Syrian conflict, uh, they were already you know, getting up into the tens of thousands with Iraq. You're already into sort of 20,000 plus, but not here, not here. So what does this tell you? This tells you that uh, they're saying Russia is intentionally targeting civilians. Well, if, if Russia with an armed forces like they have are intentionally targeting civilians, they're not doing a very good job no. of hitting any civilians. But let's throw that back up on screen uh, just for a minute. So let's take a look at the, the fine print here. And this is where it gets interesting. Nearly half of the deaths occurred in Donetsk and Lugansk regions, in the Donbass, okay? So those are total civilians killed by both Russian and Ukrainian. This is how I'm reading this. I think this is how the UN's reading this. So, and, and nearly half of them are from the Donbass. Those are probably people who are uh, from the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republic, killed by Ukrainian forces. Mm. So if Russia is only being attributed to killing 1,500 uh, Ukrainian uh, civilians so far, this is incredibly low. So what what about the genocide and the all this stuff? Where you know are these crazy hysterical claims justified? And we're told about the brutality. It seems like the Russia is saying they're taking extra 
care to not incur civilian casualties. In fact, they're probably incurring quite a few casualties themselves by avoiding civilian casualties. In other words, it's costing Russia men yes. uh, by avoiding, carefully avoiding. Meanwhile, all the reports say Ukraine is using the civilians as human shields. So this, what could this number be in reality? It could be even higher on the Ukrainian. Ukraine have killed more, civilian, more of their own civilians than Russia has. It's very, very probable hmm. that that's the case. We're saying, look a little bit closer, read between the lines. Uh, and we'll go on here. This is, now, this is where it gets interesting. How many Ukrainian uh, soldiers have died, Mike? Nobody talks about this. Have you noticed this? Yeah. It's almost verboten. And it's not only verboten in the Western media, it's not allowed even within the Ukrainian armed forces. How do we know? Well, we'll go to our friends here at AFP. They've actually got an embedded uh, journalist here. Some really difficult battles, says the quiet uh, Semenev. He's a commander of this uh, brigade. And this brigade, like the others, they don't say how many people have been killed. So this is, this is forbidden to talk about in the Ukrainian armed forces. When the subject comes up, he says, they gaze away, the pain is raw. I'm sure it is, I'm sure it's a difficult topic, but, but our question is what happens if, what if these are high numbers? How would that change Western public opinion on pumping weapons into this war zone on giving billions and billions of dollars to Zelensky, mm. would it change Western public opinion mm. if we knew the real casualties? Well, here's what they're saying about the Russian side. We've seen these. This is from March, 40,000 Russian casualties on the battlefield. I mean, it, how factual is this? Was this based in any reality? We don't know. This was back in March. Well, it's a, it's a nittle claim. That's, that's all we can say. It's a nittle claim. So let's be honest, both sides would want to minimize their own casualties and inflate their opponent's casualties. That, that, that's pretty accepted, right? So that, that's one of those claims. Uh, here, this is the Metro, all, always a bastion of great journalism here. Uh, One-fifth of Russia's entire army wiped out by Ukraine in disastrous invasion. I mean, this is just fantasy fiction on March 17th. Um, but yet this is fine. This, is, this isn't considered disinformation because this is propaganda that our governments like. So it's okay. They, they're, they're okay to disseminate that in public, and it, it actually gets the most traction of, of anything, more than any blogger, okay? But that's fine. We like the narrative, okay? 30,000 Russian soldiers have either been killed or wounded, according to U.S. intelligence. So U.S. intelligence is feeding the editorial desks with all these claims, Institute for the Study of War, uh, et cetera, here. And here's the New York Times, deaths of foreign uh, fighters, there's Malcolm Nance, we'll talk about him another time. Uh, and so this is what the Western intelligence agencies, what New York Times is saying, estimated Russia's military losses range from 7,000 to 10,000 killed and 20,000 to 30,000 wounded. Now that's very different now. This is just this week from what they were saying in March, bigger numbers than this, mm. which is the New York Times. So what does that tell you about the previous reports? They're probably completely bogus probably fake news, just made up out of thin air. So this is the New York Times. So we don't know what the numbers are. New York Times is honest there. At least they're saying we don't know. Could be between this or that. I'm more likely to believe that this might be the case, although we're not sure. Okay, it's still unknown. If we go to Google, now let's see what they have to say about, let's ask Google a question. We'll say, how many Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in Ukraine? And they're saying here, 15,000 Russian troops have been killed. Uh, according to the latest independent estimates, they don't say who those estimates are. 
and on the Ukrainian side, 2,500 to 3,000 Ukrainian troops. Now we're watching the, the, the day-to-day battle reports and we're seeing 300 a day, 400 a day killed Ukrainian, multiple days really for the last couple of weeks. Now that, that adds up pretty quick and that we're just in May. So what's the truth? This is the question. What is the truth? Let's, let's take a look at it. South Front sanctioned by the UK government. Okay, uh, so South Front has to say this. The real numbers of losses in manpower in warring armies are not known. Both sides are aimed at hiding the casualties in their ranks and may exaggerate their enemies' losses. That's the website sanctioned by the UK government. That is the most honest statement at the beginning than any of these mainstream outlets have said. They've said it right there, Mike. Mm. They're being honest. I trust this, this media outlet a lot more than any of our Western mainstream media outlets because they say things like this. The difference in official numbers is enormous. As for Ukrainian losses, uh, Kiev claims there are estimated 3,000 servicemen, while Russia claims the number is more like 23,000. Mike, there's a big difference there. That's a huge gap. What do you think the real answer is? If you go by the halfway mark, the difference between the two, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yes. It's enough to alter, radically alter public opinion. On the other side, Moscow confirmed deaths of their servicemen. They're saying 1,300. Kiev is saying 20,000. So look at that. It's almost like an inverse uh, opposite there. Who do you believe? There's massive exaggerations and propaganda going on. So you're not getting the facts. We're telling you straight. Now, this is interesting. This is from uh, RYBAR on Telegram. Look at this. This is what they're saying. There's there's sources inside of Ukrainian general staff. Now, whether you believe this or not, you think this might be a a Russian influence op or whatever, Russian disinformation. Let's take a closer look there. 28,000 armed forces of Ukraine killed already uh, in terms of National Guard, another 23. So, you know, we're sort of at 30, 32,000. 30 or 32,000 dead Ukrainian soldiers in 73 days, okay? That's incredible. Is that true? How do we know what's true? This could be true, but maybe it's not. But based on the day-to-day battle reports, averaging about three or 350 a day killed of Ukrainian forces, this could actually be accurate. So what I'm saying is, (laughs) if this is the case, does this change people's idea or outlook outlook of this of this conflict? Thirty two thousand Ukrainian soldiers killed. If this is true, what do you, what what are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, you've covered it very well. Uh, it's pretty clear. Uh, both sides are not being quite accurate with the uh, with the numbers. Uh, the numbers are higher than than they're willing to admit on their own uh, basis. Uh, as with any war. So, you know, we're not, the, the, I think the main difference here, Patrick, is that uh, in past wars, and 10 years ago, let's say longer than 10 years ago, the mainstream press had their people on the ground. Embedded. Embedded. Yeah. And, and that has changed. And now they're making things up because they don't have people on the ground. They're not seeing it from themselves. They're relying on, they're relying on information given to them by uh, white helmets type or operatives, the, or, in, the, or Zelensky's government, or, or or taking it directly from governments. And um, who has embedded reporters? It's on the Russian side. So what are we doing in the West? 
we're, we're censoring that. Yes. We're canceling, we're blocking it. So how are we as voters, as, as educated electorate members of the public, how are we supposed to get, how are we supposed to judge what's the, what's the truth? If we only have one side of the story, this is what we're telling people. Right. Okay, so this is a good piece here. And you so wonder why this counter-offense story was put out. I think it has something to do with this, Mike. Uh, this is uh, David Stockman here, Sleepy Joe's $33 billion abomination. This isn't going over very well, this $33 billion funding tranche, latest one for Zelensky. Mm. So then you have to see stories like this being pushed out, saying that, oh, there's a counter-offensive and they're pushing Putin back. It sort of calms down the politicians, calms down the media a little bit, saying, hey, everything's going great, when in fact it could actually be a disaster uh, here. Needless to say, the politicians in both parties foaming at the mouth against Putin, the deep state, and the military-industrial complex had a field day hyping Russia into a national security threat that was not remotely justified, but did massively distort policy. That's pretty much the story of U.S. policy over the last uh, six or seven years. Here's Ned Price, State Department spokesperson, former CIA operative. The, cap the U.S. capabilities to deliver weapons to the Ukraine are inexhaustible. Well, I don't believe that for a second. Said State Department's Fox, Ned Price. Let's look at how inexhaustible Germany's weapons are. Look at this. This is from Welt. Federal government finds no ammunition for cheetah tanks. So a 40-year-old tank is basically a post-World War II tank, really a sad sort of Cold War era uh, junk that they're dumping into Ukraine here. Olaf Scholz is just saying, wow, it's not working out. The federal government has promised Ukraine weapon systems, but the message from to Kiev is, hey, it hasn't arrived yet. We don't have ammunition for this. They're missing supplies, components. All the instruction manuals are in German. You know, so it's just, it's going to be difficult. So, you know, good, good virtue signaling with the weapons, but not practical. So speaking of weapons, look at this. Let's talk about, is France and NATO shipping depleted uranium uh, to Ukraine? 21st Century Wire here, a great story uh, by the French journalist, uh, Freddie Ponton. And this is uh, an incredibly well-researched piece, Mike, uh, looking at the various systems. This is the Milan system here, sent by France. Um, are they using depleted uranium? You've got the old Milan anti-tank systems, the U.S. Javelin systems, the Mistral, uh, Mistral systems as well. Uh, you've also got the N-laws, which the U.S. Uh, the U.K. is getting from Sweden. They they have the N-laws have used DU depleted uranium in the past. Um, and so I think the new anti-tank ones probably use depleted uranium munitions as well. I would assume they did. It's armor-piercing for designed for tanks. So thousands of these weapons, there's the N-law right there. That's what the UK is supplying via the Swedish uh, manufacturer Saab. Uh, so DU is being spread apparently all over Ukraine. Radioactive dust. As it was in Iraq. As it was in Yugoslavia. Uh, so Gulf War One, Two, Yugoslavia, maybe Afghanistan too. Oh, they they deny it, and so we're seeing all of this uh, depleted uranium here. Great researched report here. You, all the documents are included, including the PDFs. So if you want to know about depleted uranium, this is a really good article here at Twenty First Century Wire by Freddie uh, Ponton. Uh, and so this this leaves us to this sort of thing, Mike. Do you see the remember the old picture of Saddam with Donald Rumsfeld there? Yes supplying Saddam with weapons. Here we are with Nancy Pelosi, Zelensky. Is history repeating itself? They used Iraq to attack Iran. And in the end, Saddam had to go. 
And will Zelensky eventually have to go as well? Uh, absolutely. How is he going to go? That's the that's the, that's the big question. Well, look, sort of sort of on the same topic. I, I, this is this is a really uh, pathetic news report here, but I just wanted to highlight British media for a second because the, the headline here, uh, all across the British media, I've just chosen actually this is the Irish Mirror, but it doesn't matter. It, it was all over the uh, the UK media as well. Passengers terrified as plane makes U-turn over Ireland due to untrained pilot. And the claim is that Virgin uh, Atlantic uh, put a, a, a first officer on the uh, aircraft which was, who was untrained and therefore and they only discovered this as we're flying over Ireland 40 minutes into the flight. They had to turn around and they had to come back to Heathrow and get another pilot. Now that's partly true, but it's also partly false. Uh, and the, the message in the press absolutely was that this pilot was untrained. He was not untrained. But anyway, this is what the... Uh, uh, the mirror had to say here, while first officers are qualified pilots whose role is to ensure the safety of the flight, support the captain and talk to air traffic control, they need to be accompanied by a training captain according to Virgin Atlantic policy, it is reported. This is an untrue statement. It is a lie. Uh, the, the first officer concerned who had his accreditation but was required under Virgin Atlantic's training policies to complete one final check flight with a training captain, uh, hadn't yet done that. And because the captain that he was with on this particular flight was not a training captain, uh, the flight had to return and he had to be replaced. The point I'm trying to make here, Patrick, is that when we look at who is reporting these things, uh, it's, and I, I'm gonna choose Anita McSorley here. Now, I'm not really uh, commenting to singling her out as such, because this applies right across the mainstream press with most of the journalists that they have working for them at the moment. Especially the Mirror, particularly bad. Well, but, but the Mail's the same, and, and all these types of newspapers are, are, are very similar. And the comment at the bottom of this article was, wow, you guys really make something quite trivial into unnecessarily drama. He was fully qualified, but his retraining paperwork had not been signed. It was an admin error only. But the point is, this uh, article was full of errors, Anita McSorley didn't do her work properly. She didn't do her job. She didn't report it properly. What, what else has she been reporting? Let's have a look. Here's the Irish mur mirror. Vladimir Putin plans to hand over power as cancer rumors grow after Russia nuclear Ireland threat. Right? <laughs> Russia so, threatens Ireland with a nuclear attack. Are you right, kidding me? Right. Uh, another one from her. Uh, what would happen if nuclear bomb hit Ireland? Vladimir Putin tests dangerous Satan 2 missile. Another one from her, COVID Ireland numbers today as almost 7,000 new cases confirmed amid concern about news XE variant. Uh, XE variant. Yes. Uh, moonshot COVID vaccine that works against all variants healed by Professor Luke O'Neill. These are all from Anita. And my point here is, Patrick, that if Anita can't get a very simple story about a, a pilot on a Virgin Atlantic plane, right, what possibility has she got to deal with more complex issues like COVID or the Ukraine war or what Putin, whether Putin's got cancer or not. She, she is in her early 20s. She's clearly in her first journalism job, but she's been given all kinds of uh, topics. And this, is, this kind of propaganda is being pushed out. I have no doubt that she doesn't appreciate that what she's doing is a bad job. She could be getting fed stories and fed stuff to basically dress up and put out. We saw that with some of these young school leavers at The Independent. Uh, over the years, and they give them all the dirty work for Syria and whatnot, or the white helmets, Olivia Solan, there's a perfect right. example. 
so as I say, I don't want to single her out in particular. Let's just look at the the Putin cancer situation. Here's the Nottinghamshire. This goes back months. This is when was this? This was first uh, of March, seventh of March. Sorry, right? So Vladimir Putin may have terminal cancer, says former intelligence officer. <laughs> what have we got here? The eye. Vladimir Putin visited by cancer doctor thirty five times amid health speculations. Report claims it's all about report claims, and they're but they're they're presenting it as if it's fact. Uh, Putin cancer rumors grow amid uh, signs of ill health, as insider reports suggest. Uh, reports suggest he could hand over power. Uh, here's the mirror. Uh, Putin plans to hand over power as cancer rumors and signs of ill health grow. This narrative, this is the rapid response mechanism and work. This is the it's common everywhere. narrative. It's everywhere. It's not everywhere. one of these journalists is questioning whether this story is true or not. They're simply regurgitating this rubbish. And, and inside sources say it's like Bellingcat, basically for the mainstream. Right. So uh, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it with with this. This is unheard. Uh, if we put this one up, and it says uh, Vladimir Putin is a medical miracle. Over the past uh, few months, the Russian leader has been uh, remotely diagnosed with enough diseases to fill a textbook, and yet somehow somehow he staggers on. That's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, and Parkinson dementia. Well, who, who's got Parkinson and dementia right now? It, it, clearly, it's not Putin. It's somebody in Washington, D.C. Why is it? Why isn't the media going after Biden who can't even complete a sentence? It's embarrassing. Yes. Uh, but you can see this is how the gaslighting um, works. So, well, look, uh, look, uh, Pat, I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. Oh, oh, do, How long's the, the Rand poll? Well, we, we can watch Rand in extra time. Okay. But um, I wanted to go to, um, just to, to Klaus there, no, 113. 113, okay. Yeah. So we thought we'd, we'd, we'd end up with a, a, a couple of uh, jovial uh, slides here. We'll, we'll put this up on screen. Uh, there we are. There he is, ladies and gentlemen. That's the World Economic Forum's latest. You can see Nina Jankovic there being held up uh, by Klaus there. We're calling this intellectual Lebensstrom, which is you will know nothing <laughs> and you will be happy. Slava Davos. Yes. And we always like to end with the joke. That's not actually the biggest joke, although that's a quite an amusing one. Here's the biggest joke here. We, we wouldn't want to deprive you of this next one, ladies and gentlemen. Look at this. Piers Morgan's ratings dive as talk TV struggles to attract viewers. How bad is it? Well, <laughs> according, let's blow that up. Ratings agency detects zero viewers uh, for primetime slots. Oh, dear. Zero. So how much is this costing Murdoch to employ Piers Morgan to speak to an empty room? Well, Morgan signed <laughs> to talk TV. A reported $50 million three-year deal. Or 50 million pounds. Pounds. 50 million pound three-year deal. Um, He's worth every penny, Patrick. So just if you're out there listening, just, just rest assured knowing that uh, when you're talking to your mates at the pub tonight, uh, you've got a bigger audience than Piers Morgan does. So just, Good rem stuff. just remember that. Okay, well, look, we've got to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday. Uh, but uh, if you stick around on the main UK column live stream, uh, we'll have uh, a bit of extra in a second. We're also going to discuss the abortion issue in the United States during extra time. So uh, that's one of the things we'll be, the topics we'll be covering. Yes. Okay. As I say, back 1 p.m. on Monday. Uh, hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.